Amen. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Father in heaven, we're just grateful today for your many blessings. We thank you for the fact that there is a name that we can call on, and his name is Jesus. Uh, a name that's above every name, uh, and that you have said in your word that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. Uh, we're grateful today, Father, for this time that you've given to us to share in your word. Uh, we're happy that uh, uh, we can come together as a church family, as your body. And uh, we ask that you give us an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And Father, we shall be careful to give your name praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I invite you to look with me in to the book of Nehemiah as we continue our series uh, from Nehemiah called the Nehemiah Perspective. And today we want to share with you this thought, how to handle your opposition, how to handle your opposition. And this is the first part of this message. Uh, we'll be doing the second part of this message on August 31st. The Lord say the same uh, after All About Him Sunday. Uh, how to handle your opposition. Uh, and for those of you who, who are kind of like me, I just want to put it like this. We're going to be talking about how to handle your haters today. Amen. Anybody got any haters? Amen. Amen. You know some haters. That's right. That's right. Know some haters. Uh, so we're going to talk about how to handle your haters on today. Uh, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, is our text. And uh, it reads as follows from the English Standard Version. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, uh, Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Now, so far in this series, we've been talking about this man, Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, who was a ruler of all of Babylon, Persia, and at this time had conquered Judea and Israel and was the ruler of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah was a Jew who had never even been to the ancestral homeland of his people. But he was born in captivity. But he was one, though he was born in captivity, captivity was not born into him. And he was one who went to the king and said, King, I need to go back to my homeland and I need to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. The walls of the city had been torn down in the captivity. The gates of the city, the once proud, majestic gates of the city of Jerusalem were burned in fire. They were ashes instead of this beautiful uh, beauty of these gates and these majestic uh, uh, gates of this city. 
And so Nehemiah says, King, I need to go back. And he prayed to God and the king gave him everything he needed. And he went back to Jerusalem. And on last week, we talked about how he, he walked the streets of Jerusalem at night. And he saw things that you might see in a city at night. He didn't tell anybody that he was, he was going to, to go and, and walk these streets. He went out. He didn't take an entourage. He didn't have to have a meeting. He didn't get a, a group of people and say, uh, let's have a parade so that we could see what's going on. He went with just a few people who were with him in vision. They were with him in, in vision. They were with him in purpose. And he surveyed the damage. And now he also had spoke into the lives of the people of Jerusalem. And last week I shared with you that before we get into rebuilding cities with brick and mortar, we must first rebuild the people that live in the cities. We must rebuild uh, cities, but we must start with people. Rebuilding lives. And Nehemiah said to them, he said, let us rise up and rebuild these walls because here's the purpose, because the way in which we are living is disgraceful. There was shame associated with allowing the walls to be in the condition that they were in. There was shame in allowing the walls to fall into such disrepair. And Nehemiah spoke into their hearts and into their spirit. And he said to them that we have to rebuild so we'll no longer be a disgrace. And one of the keys, one of the keys that if you want to help rebuild people's lives, we have to get back to understanding that there's a such thing as disgrace. There's a such thing as shame. And so here's Nehemiah speaking these words into the people and the people responded. You'd be amazed how people respond to capital T truth when you tell them what is really going on. And the people responded and said, let us rise up and build. But I'm here today to tell you that when God moves, there's always somebody that's a hater. If you don't believe that, you might be one. (laughs) Look at somebody and ask them, are you a hater? Are you a just, I don't mean no harm. I just need to know. I need to know how close my haters are. I just need to know. (laughs) And so, and so this, this time we find Nehemiah. On this spiritual high, the people on this spiritual high, let us rise up and build. He shared a dynamic word of challenge to the people of Jerusalem. Let us build so that we no longer be a disgrace. Nehemiah captures the essence of the need facing us today. How do we connect people to their own uplift? In the midst of this celebratory moment, the author here shifts to a very present difficulty arising in response to the joyous celebration of Nehemiah and the people from the joy of moving people to a critical place of freedom in their lives to now confronted 
with dangerous opposition from those who would keep Jerusalem in a position of disillusionment, destruction, and decay. We meet three adversaries, three haters, previously mentioned in this chapter. Let us take a closer look at these three men, their position, their character, and their lifestyle. The mention of two of these men is in chapter 2, verse 10, where we read these words. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come back to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Sambalat the Horonite was the governor of Samaria. And although the text does not say this, we know it from the discovery of ancient documents which list him as the governor of Samaria. Historically, and before Nehemiah's time, the Jews who came back to repatriate Jerusalem were detested by the Samaritans who opposed any efforts at repatriation. The Samaritans did not want a Jewish presence reestablished in the region because the Jews would not approve of intermarriage between the Samaritans and their captors. Although the Jews and Samaritans were related, they were like cousins. As far back as the sons of Joseph, the son of Jacob, these cousins did not get along with one another and remained at odds all the way through the time of Jesus Christ. And even still today, Sambalat would have seethed in his disdain for the Jews or anything that would aid their benefit. Sambalat was hater number one. Now, verse 10 also reveals another adversary for Nehemiah. His name is Tobiah the Ammonite. He is referred to as an official in some version of the scripture, but the word literally means servant. This is likely uh, means that Tobiah was a servant of the king in some capacity that gave him a great deal of influence. He is also termed as an Ammonite, but that was not his ancestry and more likely referred to the fact that he worked among the people of Ammon. Whatever his designation, it's clear that he was significant enough to warrant a mention as one who strictly opposed giving any help to the Jews. Tobiah did not want to see any good thing happen with Jerusalem. And I'm going to throw this in for free. There are some people in your life that no matter how blessed you become, they don't want to see any good thing happen in your life. You might as well say something right there. Tobiah is hater number two. And as we look at our text, verse 19 of chapter two, we see the author repeat the mention of Sambalat and Tobiah and also introduce a third adversary 
to the Jews. Geshem, the Arab. Now, the text identifies Geshem as an Arab. This is the same Geshem that ruled parts of Moab, Edom, and Arabia under the auspices of the Persian Empire. Geshem may have actually been the most powerful figure of the three. But he was also less committed to the destruction or marginalization of the Jews than the other two. Because Geshem's territory was so big, it really didn't matter to him all that much what happened with Jerusalem. He was ruling Moab and Arabia and, and, and all those places. Uh, uh, and he worked very closely under the, the, the auspices of the king of the Persian Empire. And, and get this right now that the Persian Empire was the biggest and best thing going at that time. And so Geshem was not as affected by this. But yet he is mentioned as one who opposed the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Geshem is hater number three. It is in this difficult circumstance that we view this man, Nehemiah. A man who must rebuild a people in order that they may rebuild their own wall in the midst of virulent opposition. How will Nehemiah handle this opposition? What will he do to maintain the morale of the people? It's one thing that haters do very, very well. They destroy your morale. They destroy your spirit to do something. How many times have you called somebody and said, hey, I got this great idea. I'm going to start a business. And the first thing out of their mouth, you can't start a business. Who do you think you are? You, you think you Bill Gates or somebody? You don't have any money. And the hater begins to destroy your morale. And so that's what these men were committed to. And we have to look and ask the question, does Nehemiah's action give us any indication as to how the people of God should respond to opposition? And I know, I know that we are very comfortable in here today, but don't get it twisted. There is opposition to the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. And some of it might be sitting in this room. I'm not trying to start nothing. I'm just saying. I I knew I wouldn't get an amen on that one. (laughs) Don't you think for a minute that haters don't come to church. Haters have to stay informed. (laughs) They come down here to see what's going on at the former boys and girls club. Girl, I heard it was a church down there. I'm going to go down there and check it out. Them people think they're doing down there. So there's opposition to the kingdom of God. Nehemiah is in a bit of a predicament. He has a job to do, commissioned to him by God, and yet he has vocal as well as visible opposition. There is no doubt that when God's people come together, as I said, across and especially across cultural, social, and economic boundaries, 
the enemy takes notice. Satan and his minions are not blind to what is happening right here in this church. The devil knows that race and ethnicity is the last barrier in the kingdom of God. And Bethel Gary is watching those walls fall down. Somebody ought to give God some praise. Those walls are coming down. And the enemy knows this. So, so there, the enemy sees the potential for life change. He sees that there is something that is happening right here that could make a difference in Gary, Indiana and surrounding neighborhoods. He knows that the gospel is right now transforming lives and will continue to transform lives. Our Lord Jesus understood the dynamics of promoting God's righteousness, his grace and the gospel in an unredeemed world. In John 16 and 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me, watch this now, in me, you may have peace in the world. Watch this now. You will have tribulation, not you might have, not you could have, but you will have tribulation. But watch this. He says, but take heart because I have overcome the world. That's a celebration moment right there. Oh, come on. If you ever had a problem and Jesus brought you through, that's a celebration moment right there. Be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. Watch this now. So how does Nehemiah confront his opposition? As I studied this text, There are three elements that shape Nehemiah's response to opposition, and they also lead us to forming our own response. First thing is, you have to know the source of your success. Amen. Look at somebody and say, neighbor, know the source of your success. You got to know it. You got to know it. Verses 19 and 28. It says, but when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and they despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Watch the reply of Nehemiah here. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Yeah, yeah, somebody's getting that. The God of heaven will make us prosper. Look at the content of the enemy's plan. They jeered them. And in Hebrew, this word leag means to mock, to deride, and to ridicule by making fun of them with stammering speech. And so what they would do is pretend like they were stammering and couldn't speak. What you gonna, gonna, gonna do? You gonna build the wall? They mocked them offensively with stammering speech. 
they pointed, if they were little kids, they would do something like this. Nah, 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 nah. You ain't going to do it. They mocked him. So now, they didn't just jeer them. They despised them. The Hebrew word therefore despise is beza. And it means to despise, to hold in contempt, to disdain. Not only did they verbally abuse them, but in their hearts, they couldn't stand them. Sounds like a hater to me. Haters not only have a problem with their mouth, they have a problem in their heart. See, if you're a hater, this is for you today. I'm just going to throw this in for free. If you're a hater, your problem is not just with what you say. It's what you believe in your heart. You're so busy hating somebody else because you don't even believe that you can be successful. That's going to catch up with you when you get home. Come on, give God praise for that. That's right. You're so busy hating the success of others that you miss the opportunity to succeed yourself. Now, Bill Gates has 90 billion, whatever, 90 or whatever it is, billion dollars. Imagine if he was going around hating on somebody with 50 bucks. <laughs> How crazy would that look? And here, these haters hold them in contempt in their heart. Not only, not only did they do that, they asked ridiculing and accusatory questions. That could lead to the death of Nehemiah. You know, see, we live in a, in a, a, a representative republic in the United States. That's really what, what the United States is, a re- representative republic. And, and we're not accustomed to kings getting to make decisions. And everybody just have to do what the king say just because the king said it. But in this time, if you said anything against the king, See, we got the First Amendment. You got the freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. But if in this time, there was no such thing. You couldn't stand there and say before our desserts says, I'd like to execute my constitutional right. I need to say something. King, I don't, do, I don't agree with you. Before you get the words off, off with the head. <laughs> the king could decide who lives or dies. And so they asked these questions because they were trying to incite the people to fear. And so they say, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Please understand that there are people who oppose the family of God, his church, and they desire to destroy our confidence and spirit with their ridicule they don't want to see people of all nations tribes and tongues come together for the sake of the gospel because it will directly affect their sinful grip upon the future of this community drug dealers don't want to see people of all nations come together Crooked politicians don't want to see people of all nations come together. Those who would promote mayhem don't want to see people of all nations come together. Because that's, for the sake of the gospel, that will break the grip 
of sin on this community. Now let's look at Nehemiah's reaction. He answers them confidently because he knows the source of his success. He knows that the source of his success is not their opinion. Oh, come on. You're going to get set free this morning right here. He says the God of heaven will make us prosper. Right there, right then, in the face of opposition, Nehemiah's faith just jumps out of his spirit. I have faith in God. The God of heaven is going to make us prosper. Your your haters, your haters can't stand that. They thought, and the reason they're haters is because they thought their opinion meant something. They thought their opinion of you meant something. Their opinion means nothing in the face of the God of heaven who has already approved you. Can I I throw something in for free? How many people in here, just throw your hand up real fast, that you you applied for credit, you applied for credit. Yeah, you did, you did. You come on, you asked, you tried to get something on credit, you did. And a few of us... (laughs) nervously await the results. <laughs> now, some of us, we're not worried about a thing, but, but a few of us are sitting there like, oh, I hope this come through. And you're waiting on somebody to approve you. I'm going somewhere with this. A lot of the reasons why we don't reach our full potential Is because we're waiting on the approval of somebody else. But I came to tell you today that I serve a God who has given us the approval through his son, Jesus Christ. By the blood of the lamb, I am approved. I don't have to wait. The moment I believe the gospel, I'm approved. Look at somebody and tell them I'm approved. I'm approved. So, Nehemiah said, the God of heaven is going to make us prosper. My brothers and sisters, in order to live as an overcomer, we must know that the source of our success is not revealed in who we are, but it's revealed in who God is. How many times have we failed because we did not believe that God is the source of our success? We've given credit to everything except God. We've given credit to our financial positions. We've given credit to our educational background. We've given credit to our friends. I had a wonderful person call me a couple weeks ago and says, you know, it's all about who you know. I said, you know what? You're right. And I asked him, who do you know? I know the God of heaven. Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide. I know the God of heaven. Jehovah Nasi, the God who heals. I know the God of heaven. And if you know the God of heaven, you're already approved. 
Know the source of your success. The second thing in dealing with opposition is that you have to know your status with God. Watch this now. You've got to know your status with God. Who is he and who are you to him? Nehemiah says this in the B part of verse 20. We are his servants. Mm. There's some power in that if you get it. We are his servants. We, his servants, will arise and build. We, his servants. What is your status with God? It's important to note that Nehemiah was clear as to his standing with God. He clearly classifies himself and the people as servants. He understood his place. Let me tell you something about servants. Servants don't behave from a position of entitlement. God, you got to do this for me. Because I went to church three Sundays last month. And I really believe, I prayed, I prayed five times this week. I went to church. I did, I even went to Bible study. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I, I speak good Christianese. Somebody asked me how I'm doing. I was like, I'm blessed and highly favored. That's good Christianese. I did all of those things. So God, when I pray for this new car, I think you owe it to me, God. Now see, nobody in here will admit approaching the throne of grace like that. But there's an arrogance that gets in our spirit that we forget who's the master and who's the servant. Oh, come on here, somebody. God is not your spiritual errand boy. We send God all over the place, don't we? Someone's on our knees. Uh, God, go to the hospital. God, go to the prisons. God, go down to the, to the drug house. God, go here, go there. And God is looking at you like, didn't I tell you to go? Amen. I thought I told you to go into all the highways and the byways. I thought I told you to go into the world with the gospel. We're sending God. That's an arrogant position. And so, so servants understand their place. Last night I was at Applebee's and the young man who was waiting on us said something. And, I, you know, I, I try not to be a, too finicky. Um. But the Applebee's here in Maryville, I was in Indianapolis, the Applebee's here in Maryville, they, they serve raspberry tea right out the fountain. They don't have to mix it. That's how I like my raspberry tea. I don't want you pouring something in, trying to get it right. Just get it to me the way brisk Nestle makes it. I'm good with that. And so he brings me the first tea, and it's sweet tea, no raspberry. So I thought maybe it's just a simple mistake. And he takes it back. And he brings me the second tea. It's unsweetened tea. 
with no raspberry. I'm like, all right, we're two for two here. <laughs> he brings me the third tea. And it's unsweetened at the top with raspberry syrup on the bottom. So now I'm like, man, and I got this thing. My wife will tell you, I got this thing. I don't bother people that fix my food. I don't want them upset with me. (laughs) And I'm thinking, how am I going to send this back? And I gave it to him. I said, and I began to say, do you have just a tea to come out the fountain? And he said, he said, no, I don't, we don't have that. We make ours. Now, if I'd asked that from the beginning, you know, so there's a lesson there, but I assumed that all Applebee's were the same, just so you know, they're not. <laughs> but, but he, he took the third one back. I said, I'll have a Sierra mist. <laughs> he took the third one back and I said, I'm sorry that I, I I took you through all this. And he looked at me and he said, sir, I'm here to serve you. I mean, it was like the heavens opened up. Thank you, God, for an illustration for tomorrow. (laughs) We must approach our relationship with God from the standpoint that he is not here to serve us. We are here to serve him. So it doesn't matter how many times he tells you to take it back. That's going to lose some of y'all right in here today. I'm not going to another meeting. Come to the meeting. It might be the same information. We might have to repeat the same song in rehearsal. We might have to do the same thing over. It doesn't matter how many times God asks us to take it back. We are here to serve him. You got to know your status with God. Know who you are. You are a servant. Now, the last thing, the last thing that I got to get you to this. I got to get you to this. This life of serving. Well, let me tell you this. Before I do that, before I do that, let me give you this. Humanity has created a false theology built upon the basis that our desires are more important than God's will. There's a whole theology out there that's false because people tell you that God wants you to be rich. And they go find two or three scriptures out of context and build a whole theology around them. And they have you jumping out your seat, running down there, throwing money on the altar. They tell you crazy things like, in order for you to be blessed, you got to bless the prophet. And we fall for that. And the prophet lives pretty good. You go home, your rent still due. It's a whole false theology. In fact, one of the issues with the branding of the church and communities that that lack a, a true is a lack of true Christian service. People understand that the church is a place where the people of God ought to be serving, not bringing us in here and tell us how we can serve them. 
And let me tell you something. People don't need a theology degree to notice whether your service is legit. They don't have to go to school. They don't have to be a one that can articulate an eloquent prayer. They can catch on pretty quick if your service is not legit. It's not authentic. Nehemiah had a heart totally dedicated to God. That's why he could understand and say that we, his servants, and such a heart helped him to know that he and the people were servants of the Most High God. Let me tell you something. Opposition fades in the face of true servanthood. Our Lord showed us how to serve by the sacrifice of his life and his serving destroyed the enemy. Because Jesus came not as a king in a mansion, in a palace, but as a babe in a manger. Because Jesus said foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head because Jesus understood that doing the will of the father was far more important than being served. I don't understand a lot of these preachers today on television go around with security details and all this kind of stuff. You know, I don't get that. What are you afraid of? (laughs) You know, uh, preaching the truth? (laughs) Maybe you're afraid because it's not the truth that you're preaching. I just threw that in for free too. (laughs) Watch this now. Your enemy does not know how to handle a servant's heart. Your haters don't know how to handle a servant's heart. Your haters don't know what to do with the fact that if you walked up to them, how can I serve you? How can I help you? Well, you see, the problem with you is, you might be right. Now, how can I help you? All of that begins to fade away. Because they realize they're talking to someone who's a servant. We are servants. So you must know your status with God. Now the last thing I want to share with you. Is that not only. Not only do you have to know the source of your success. Not only do you need to know your status with God. But you need to know. The status of your enemy. Watch this now. In the C portion of verse 20. Nehemiah throws something in. And I'd like to say if he was there, if we were there, he'd probably say, I'm throwing this in for free. (laughs) He says this, but you, Sambalit, Tobiah, and Geshem, you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nothing, nada, nothing is yours. Wait a minute. Nehemiah knew the status of his enemy. He knew that when it came to God's people and the place of God's people, his enemies had no authoritative right to even be there. You all give the devil too much credit. 
Boy, I don't know what I'm going to do next time I talk to a Christian. And I ask them how they're doing. And the first thing out of my mouth, oh, the devil busy. Oh, the devil. You Come on now. You, you didn't say it. Throw your hand up real fast. Don't let nobody see. They, they know you're holy. Just, oh, the devil surely is busy. <laughs> really? <laughs> you apparently don't know the status of your enemy. I don't care how busy he is. I serve a God that's greater than any situation, circumstance, temptation, or trial that the enemy could even think of. What clearly gives believers the advantage is that God, through Jesus Christ, has destroyed the claim the enemy had on you. When you become a believer, that claim is destroyed. It's ripped up. It's torn to shreds. The enemy no longer has a claim on you. Satan has no rights in relation to those who believe the gospel. No rights. No rights. Regardless, my brothers and sisters, of our circumstances. The Bible teaches us one important fact regarding this. That we have the victory. Stop living like you might get the victory. Stop living like the game is in doubt. I know it looks like the fourth quarter in your life. And I know it looks like your team is down. I know it looks like that they're on the one yard line and they got four downs to get that touchdown. And, and you don't know what you're going to do to stop it. But I came to tell you that you need to just turn around and see who's on your defense. You just need to turn around and see who's on your team. You need to turn around and see who's with you. And a lot of times we get discouraged because we don't know that the enemy, no matter how close it looks to him scoring, he cannot get the victory. Because thanks be to God who has already. Oh, I wish I had two or three people that believe that today. Who's already given us the victory. There's no point of you operating like you don't have the win. It's a whole different attitude when you know you've won. It's a whole different attitude when you know you've gotten the victory. Your mindset changes. Instead of going through life with your head down at every problem, every situation, every difficulty, you hold your head up. Yeah, I, that bill is due, but I got the victory. My job has laid me off, but thanks be to God, I've got the victory. My children sometimes act like they don't have a brain in their head. But thanks be to God, I already have the victory. My neighborhood needs to be cleaned up, but thanks be to God, I already have the victory. It looks dark in my life right now. But thanks be to God, I have the victory. And we have to live like we have the victory. We have to walk like we have the victory. You shouldn't have to wear a t-shirt that says you're a Christian. 
Just walk like one. Just talk like one. You shouldn't have to wear a wristband to remind you what Jesus would do. Just do what Jesus would do. Get in your word. Open it up. And if you get a chance, go over to Romans chapter 8, verse 35, where it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us? Shall it be tribulation or distress or persecution or famine? or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But this is where my spirit started getting excited when I got to verse 37. And I see Paul doing the same thing in my mind's eye. I see Paul saying, I've been through a storm. I've been through the rain. I've been shipwrecked and left for dead. I've been stoned and left for dead. They dragged me out of the city. They did everything they could. They threw me in jail. But here's what I came up with. His answer to what shall separate us from the love of Christ shall these things. No. You need to get a no in your spirit. No. This will not separate me from the love of Christ. No hater, no opposition, no enemy, no devil in hell shall separate me from the love of Christ. Paul says, in all these things. That's what you got to get. All that tribulation, all that trials, all that persecution. He didn't say in spite of those things. He says in them. Watch this now. Some of us don't want to celebrate till it's, till it's over with. Huh? Oh, I, I can shout now because it's over. I, I came through it. I want to know if you got the courage to shout while you're in it. Can you praise while you're in the situation? He says in all these things, in them, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We're conquerors because he's a conqueror. We're overcomers because he overcame. The gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us that he gave his life for our sin. He took all of our sin and put it on Calvary. But I'm so glad that Calvary wasn't the end of the story. That even as they took him down after he said, it's finished. Even as they took him down from that cross, as his body slumped into the arms of those who handled it, it was beaten, it was bruised, it was bloodied. He wasn't even recognizable from bearing the weight of our sin. They wrapped him and laid him in that tomb. And on the third day, the women got there and the angel said to them, why are you seeking the living? Amongst the dead. Why are you seeking the living amongst the dead? He has risen. 